brought a Bible with you this morning, we're going to be in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. 14, uh, we dealt with the first 13 verses last week, uh, and we will now deal with the last six this week, 14 through 20. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that scripture will be behind me uh, on the screen when we get to that point. Uh, and if you are joining us online, you should be able to uh, see this scripture on whatever device you are watching. We got Revelation 14, 14 through 20. <clears throat> so this passage is very clearly, uh, as we near the end of Revelation, or starting to get to the beginning of the end, anyway, of the book of the Revelation, um, very clearly about judgment. And I don't know about you, but I, I kind of, when I think about judgment in the world and judgment that I myself have faced at different times to varying degrees throughout life for various reasons, uh, I think there are two broad categories of judgment that I have found myself under. One being judgment for something done well, a judgment that everybody loves, uh, a judgment for uh, doing something extraordinary uh, or doing something above and beyond what's required of you in receiving praise for doing something well. And then, of course, judgment for doing something bad, doing something badly, doing something evil, doing something atrocious, doing something worthy of punishment, worthy of disgust, uh, and, and, and the kind of whatever judgment that would come with, whether it's a legal judgment or a relational judgment, uh, or it's something that happened at school when you were younger. I think all of us have probably experienced both of those kinds of judgment. For instance, when you were a child, maybe if you did well in school, uh, you were able to bring the report card home to mom and dad, and it was full of A's or A's and B's, and you were able to present it to them, and you were looking forward to that positive judgment. Maybe you even had some sort of incentive program set up, where if you uh, got all A's, then you received some kind of reward, or you got uh, so many dollars for every A on your report card, or something like that, different things I've heard families do throughout the year. And so you brought that to them, that news to them, expecting judgment to be a positive reinforcement of your behavior, something that would bring you joy and something that would bring you positive recognition. But then on the flip side, if you were to get that call from school, or your parents more precisely, were to get that call from school that one of those dreaded parent-teacher meetings was being required because some of your activity, some of your behavior was less than savory, that's a different kind of judgment that you're expecting. I don't know how many of you can identify with this, but I was, nor I was always more worried about what would happen at home than I was about what punishment I would get at school. Anybody else fall under that category of parenting when you were a child? Um, and I can remember one time in particular, I was telling myself a little bit, I remember one time in particular when I was in high school, uh, my parents got that call, uh, and uh, I was on my way home from football practice in my own vehicle, uh, and I saw them headed the other direction, which they never went that direction at that time of day, uh, and they were in separate cars, meaning they had just got back from work. Uh, my imagination starts flooding immediately, wondering what in the world is going on. Uh, I was old enough to have a cell phone at the time, one of those brick Nokia cell phones, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and so I gave him a call, and I'm like, hey, where y'all headed? It's like, well, Mrs. Burke, that was our principal's name, uh, called and, and wants to talk about something. And so I went home and awaited a different kind of judgment, right? A judgment that I knew wasn't going to be pleasant. And it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't fun. That evening when they got home, I got to sit and wait a couple of hours and hear about what I'd done wrong and what was going to happen as a result of it. That's a different kind of judgment. All of us, like the judgment that we get when we get our special someone in our lives, the perfect gift, right? 
uh, 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 the thing that they've always wanted. Uh, or, you know, especially uh, when you're in a relationship and, and somebody tells you to go get this one thing, like that's one thing to do that. That's helpful in a relationship. But when you're smart enough, and it doesn't happen enough for me, and most men can probably identify with this, we need to do it more often. Yes, men, be better at this. To listen to our brides, to figure out things that they want without asking specifically for them, so that we can then clue in without being told what they want, to figure out exactly what they want, and then get that thing, right, and bring it to them and present it to them for anniversary or birthday or Christmas or whatever, and we expect a positive judgment in that case. One of joy of, oh, you were thinking about me, and all of the things that are building up of relationships. We expect a very different kind of judgment, say, and, and, and I've never done this, but say if we forget the anniversary completely, right? That's a different kind of judgment altogether, where if you remember in the middle of the day, oh yeah, I forgot that, let me go get a card real quick, uh, you know, so let me send a, a happy anniversary text with a bunch of emojis to try to make up for it. Again, I've never done that. Don't look at me weird like that, like you're thinking I have. But I'm just saying that's a different kind of judgment if that were going to occur, right? We, we get two different kinds of judgment. Those of you who drive safely all of the time, who always drive the speed limit or a few miles under the speed limit, which maybe is one or two of you in here, uh, and most of us tend to not do this, but let's say you're one of those, those wonderful drivers the, you know, you have the, like the insurance companies that will give you the thing you can plug into your car where if you drive really safe, you get a discount. Maybe you're one of the few that that actually works for. Uh, and you're always driving, again, a speed limit or five miles, hour, uh, five miles under the speed limit or uh, you're making sure that you never get too close to someone on the freeway where you're, you're always leaving uh, ample amount of stopping distance. Uh, you get over every time there's a cop, has somebody pulled over. You slow down to 55 miles an hour. You come to a full stop. At every stop sign, uh, you make sure that you approach a yellow light with caution. Like, you do all of those things perfectly. If that's you, when you pass a cop or you see a cop passing you or you see one in your rearview mirror, you're likely not to feel any sort of dread. You might even wave as they drive by, right? Because you know that you're doing everything perfectly. You might even expect them, if you were to talk to a cop, for them to come and shake your hand and say, I saw the turn signal that you put on just to change lanes and you did it perfectly. You might expect positive judgment in that way. But if you're like the majority of the people that I share I-35 with anytime I go anywhere and you drive at least 10 miles over the speed limit with regularity and you've been going 85 for the last 30 minutes and you see the cop in your rearview mirror, you're going to have a very different reaction, right? You're going to expect a very different sort of judgment. There is judgment for things done well and judgment for things done poorly. And we're going to see this very idea in the scripture we're going to read this morning. Revelation 14, 14 through 20. A judgment that is unto life and a judgment that is unto death. We are getting closer to the end, again, kind of getting into the beginning of the end, some of the final judgments coming. Things are going to move very rapidly, uh, and so uh, we'll get some more into that context here in a moment. But before we read Revelation 14, 14 through 20, let's pray together once more. Father, once again, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for being here with us, among us, within us. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to praise you for all the wonderful things you've done and for who you are. God, we thank you most importantly for your salvation. God, for protecting us from the consequences of our own sin, from the wrath that those sin incurred. And God, saving us for a now full of freedom and an eternity full of you. 
God, we thank you for your word that communicates this truth to us. God, we thank you for using your perfect word every time we open it and through your Holy Spirit and planting that word within us. And God, we ask that you do the same this morning. God, that you implant that word within us in such a way that we are transformed through an encounter of you and your truth. God, may you remove anything that is not of you. God, may you remove all distractions so that we might hear exactly what you have for us this morning. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out, of, out from the altar, <clears throat> the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Contextually, we've just been shown earlier in this chapter that there are consequences for our choices. That those who choose to follow Jesus will be sealed by his Holy Spirit and protected in him for eternity. And that those who choose to follow the Antichrist way, as we're looking in, in chapters 12 and 13 and 14, uh, the way of the Antichrist and the beasts that come and, and preach in his name, those who follow the way of opposition to the kingdom of God and bear the mark that, that shows that opposition, the mark of the beast, those people will bear the consequences of their decision as well. A consequence that we learned in chapter 14 is described as drinking from a cup of God's undiluted wrath. The final series of judgments is about to be upon us in Revelation. There's been three, or there are three sets of seven judgments, and we're about to get into the third set and the chapters to come. These seven angels with the seven bowls of the, of the wrath of God, pouring them out and seeing havoc once again break out over the earth. And we're getting to that point where the judgment will no longer be partial. It won't be a story that leads to another story. It will be a completed story. All seven bowls are going to be poured out. God's judgment is going to be poured out in its fullness. We're getting to that end of the story. The time has come. The time is here for the harvest. As the angel says, or as we learn in chapter 14, uh, the time has come because the harvest of the earth is fully ripened. And one like a son of man is given a sickle. One like a son of man, of course, being an allusion to Jesus, has a crown upon his head. And with the sickle, he reaps from the earth. It's kind of a, a violent image, but we shouldn't take it that way. This is God, through Jesus Christ, gathering his saints. Uh, this is a, a, a symbolic picture of God calling all of his followers home, of, of, of the fruit of the field, the grain harvest, finally being fulfilled, finally being finalized, where God brings in all of those who are called according to his name, who are saved according to his name. 
And that, 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 that harvest is finally fully ripened. When I thought about that idea of the harvest being fully ripened, I, I'm reminded of, of a place in the Gospels where Jesus talks about how the end will come and how the end will come according to a certain timetable. It's not a specific timetable, but that there are some things that have to happen before the end comes. And that's in Matthew chapter 24. I want to read a few verses from Matthew 24. 24 verses 9 through 14. Jesus says this about the end times. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. This is much of what we've already seen depicted in Revelation. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now Jesus is specific when he gives time indications about the, 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 the coming end, that he does not, that no one other than the Father in heaven knows the exact hour that the end will come. Not even the Son of God, while he was on earth, was privy to that information. Only God himself knows. So anytime someone says, I know exactly when the end is going to come, you can probably count on that being not when the end is going to come. And Jesus is not giving us a precise date when the end will come, but what he is saying is something that needs to happen prior to the end coming is that all nations will hear the gospel. All nations will hear the truth, and then the end will come. And you might think that where we are today, the, the way that information spreads so easily today and the access that we have to things both printed and virtually, uh, that this sort of information, the gospel information, the gospel story would be accessible to the entire world. Well, that is certainly not the case. There are literally thousands of people groups on the planet today that have yet to hear the gospel in their particular language, in their particular context, in such a way where they might actually accept the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is one of the realities that missionaries all over the world are seeking to change so that people might hear and might know and then might proclaim truth of the gospel for salvation. There are literally thousands of people groups on the planet that have not yet heard. There's still work to be done. So I'm reminded of that, and there's part of my heart that aches that that has not yet come to pass. There's part of me that gets frustrated when I think about the number and how large it is, even though our world seems to be getting smaller and smaller, even though we seem to be getting more and more connected, that there's still so many people who have yet to even hear the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I get frustrated about that, it is a helpful reminder, I find, here in Revelation 14, to know that there will come a time when the gospel has gone out to all the earth and the harvest is fully ripened. What I see that is, is a prophecy that will come true, that Jesus himself said in Matthew 24 that will come true, that all the nations will someday hear. In other words, there, is a, there will come a day when the gospel will have been proclaimed fully to the entire world. And I look forward to that day. There will come a day when there will not be groups who have not heard. There will come a day when the gospel has done its job. When the gospel has won the day, exactly as Christ willed it to do, exactly as God willed it to do from the very beginning. The gospel will go out to all nations. And those who call upon the name of the Lord, those who profess belief in Jesus as Savior and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, will be saved. And the harvest 
will be fully ripened. And Jesus will come and call all those who belong to him home once and for all. We see it presented as the symbol of a harvester reaping with a sickle the grain in the field to call them home. There will come a day when that will happen, when all who belong to Christ will be present with him for now and for eternity. But there's a flip side to that judgment as well. As soon as we see the image close on this harvest, another angel proceeds into the picture. This angel also has a sickle. And we're also told something interesting about this angel. This is the angel who has authority over the fire. Authority over the fire. What in the world could that mean? There's a couple of ways to take that. One, contextually, in chapter 14, uh, we've already heard about the judgment that is to come for those who bear the mark of the beast, how they will receive unending, uh, uh, unendurable uh, uh, punishment forever and ever. The smoke will rise from their punishment forever and ever, we're told earlier in chapter 14. Maybe that's the fire that's being talked about. But another very intriguing idea about what is being talked about as a callback to a couple of earlier passages in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 8 3 through 5 and 6, 9 through 11. If you're a note taker and you want to make notes, 8, 3 through 5, 6, 9 through 11. Uh, we have a couple of things that might be being alluded to right here when we talk about this angel who has authority over the fire. In Revelation 8, 3 through 5, there's some judgment going on, and there's an angel who appears on the scene that has a censer, a golden censer. And this angel takes fire from the altar, and we're told in chapter 8 that the fire is the prayers of the saints. Hold that one in your head for a second. So he takes the fire from the altar into a censer, and then in an act of judgment, flings the censer, flings the fire from within the censer down on the earth as an act of judgment. Now, if that fire is indeed, as it says in Revelation 8, indicative of the prayers of the saints, we get back up to Revelation chapter 6 when we're seeing into the throne room of God and we see that the prayers of the saints are presented to God as a sacrifice and they are at the altar uh, presented to him, burning up in that way, and the saints are asking for justice. The saints are saying, how long, O God, will it take? These are the martyrs, those who have died in the faith. How long, O God, will it take for our blood to be avenged? How long will it be before everything is made right, before judgment is made complete? And so maybe it's that angel, the same angel that is working in both of those stories, who has authority over the fire, who here takes the great sickle out and once again reaps a harvest. But this time, we're not given the image of a grain kind of harvest like we were in the first part. We're given the image of a grape harvest, a wine harvest. Clusters from the grapes that are fully ripened, once again, at the perfect timing, God's timing, are taken off the vine, are reaped from the vine. And whereas in the first harvest, all we see is the harvest, we see the gathering, Jesus gathering the souls that he has sealed for eternity. Here in this second harvest, we see the grapes gathered and then cast into the great winepress of the wrath of God. This is not as positive of a picture. Contextually relevant, once again, to the undiluted cup of God's wrath earlier in chapter 14. It is a great and terrible judgment, so terrible that it has to happen outside of the city. It's not in the holy city that this happens. It is outside the walls of the city, also reminiscent of the very sacrifice of Jesus Christ and him bearing sin for our sake outside of the city walls. This unholy thing, this 
end judgment of all that is evil happens outside of the city of God, and it is brutal. It is devastating to the point that John suddenly mixes his metaphors together, and even though he's talking about wine, he then starts talking about blood, and he says that the blood was as deep as a horse's bridle, five feet, six feet, whatever that is, for 1,600 stadia. Many of you are reading Bibles with notes, whether it's a study Bible or just has a few notes. A lot of them will point out that 1600 stadia is close to 200 miles, 184, 187, something like that. Big, right? There's some other commentators that are, are trying to, to, to see it as something, something square-ish, not square, but four squared times 10 squared, and that kind of representing completeness. You can take that if you want to, take it or leave it, whatever it might be. This is a devastating view, a devastating picture, however you imagine it. This is one of God's final judgment. You ever wonder where we get the Grim Reaper in our pop culture? You know what I'm talking about, the Grim Reaper death? You know, the guy who wears the cow, the black cow, and has a sickle in his hand, and he touches you, and you die? Normally, in our culture, he's presented comically, right? I can remember reading about death uh, and seeing death pop up in Far Side comics and stuff like that. You can see him in memes. Now he's even in commercials. Uh, he was in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, I think, way back in the day. Uh, it's part of pop culture. You know, it's just funny because um, we try to make a lot of things that scare us in our, in our world and in our culture. And so we do that with death and we see that happen. And it, it's interesting to know that this is probably my guess anyway. This is probably where that came from. Because in this story, we have an angelic figure. And by the way, when I say angelic, you need to forget about the idea of nice and pristine and, and, and calming. We're talking about a magnificent, terrifying creature from a divine realm who every time they showed up in Scripture said, don't be afraid. It was basically the first thing they said. With a giant sickle in his hand, reaping. Those who were not gathered by Christ. And taking that harvest outside of the city where unholy things go and seeing it be so devastating that blood rises to the depth of five to six feet for an area of 200 or so miles. It's impossible to imagine and overstate the destruction. It is noteworthy and important to recognize that God is behind all of this. God is in control. There's part of me that doesn't want to say that because we think that makes God look evil, but God is indeed in control in this moment. You see, the new heaven and the new earth that we love to read about and celebrate in Revelation 21 and 22 is absent of all that is evil. All of that is passed away. Everything is being made new. We're going to talk about that and we're going to celebrate that when we get to the end of the book. But the reason why all of it is gone is because God has dealt with all that is evil, with all that is suffering, with all that is dark, once and for all. He's dealt with it. He has cast it into the lake of fire from which it shall never return. All that is not of him must be dealt with, must be destroyed in an eternal sense so that the people of God may live with God in peace for eternity. Absent of any sort of influence of evil or darkness. And so God certainly carries this action out. 
So I've already told you that there will come a day when the gospel will go out to all nations, when the harvest will be ripe, when the gospel will be finished, the gospel will win. But you need to hear this today as well. Those of you who may not know Christ as Savior and those of you who need to tell other people about Christ as Savior, that there will also come a day when your chance to accept the gospel will come to an end, when you will run out of opportunities. We love to celebrate the grace of Jesus Christ and the fact that we get second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, so on and so forth chances. And as long as there is air in your lungs and function in your brain, you have that opportunity. You have the opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ and call upon and profess the name of the Lord and be saved. You have that chance, no matter who you are or what you've done. It's why we celebrate a God who has the ability to save someone on death row. It's why we celebrate a God who can save literally anyone, whether it be a terrorist, a dictator, or something that probably most of us in this room would have trouble with, someone that has hurt a child. The worst possible thing we could think of. Yet God has the ability to forgive, to save, and to make anew. To change from death to life the fate of anyone on this planet. We love to celebrate that reality. And we should. It is worth celebrating. It is literally the best news that you will ever be told. But the news that must be said along with it is that that opportunity is not infinite. While it is plentiful, it will one day run out. There will come a day when your heart will stop beating, your brain will stop functioning. At that point, you will no longer have a chance to say yes or no to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That chance will have passed. You will be like the rich man in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, willing that not only could you save yourself, but that you could tell everybody else about the truth. You'll know the truth, but it'll be too late to make a choice. Because the choice was presented to you every time you had a chance on this earth. There will come a day when you stop living, when air stops exchanging through your lungs, that that choice will cease to exist. And there will come a day for the world as a whole when this end judgment finally comes that no one will longer, will any longer have an opportunity to say yes or no to the gospel. It must be dealt with here on earth. So let me again put before you the truth that judgment is coming for good or for bad depending upon what you do with Jesus. How will you respond? What will you do? Judgment is coming. Are you ready? You know, easy question to ask here. Judgment is coming. Are you ready? Because no matter how many of us are really thinking about it right now, a lot of us in this room, especially the younger we are, we still have this myth of invincibility in our head, and we think that we can have that conversation some other time. I remember a friend of mine in high school getting mad at a pastor at an evangelistic event because his little brother was brought to tears over his need for Jesus 
And he said to me, he said, I wish he wouldn't have made my little brother cry. He can worry about that when he's older. A lot of us feel that way. We're just not going to say it. Like, I'm not going to think about more mortality now. Come on, I want to live life now. I don't want to think about all the negative stuff. There's enough negative stuff in the world today. Like, everything's fine. I can think about that some other day. Man, why do today what you can put off until tomorrow? The procrastinator's creed. I know that full well. Many of us think that way about eternity. But if we were really urgent about it, it would make a difference within us. You know, one of the kindest men that I ever knew was one of our deacons at First Baptist Church in Bront, the church we pastored before we moved here seven and a half years ago. One of the kindest men I'd ever been around. Everybody spoke well of him. Always spoke kindly to me and my family. Always spoke kindly to the people around us. He was one of those that nobody, you couldn't find anybody who had anything negative to say about him. Right? In a small town, you eventually find somebody who has something negative to say about most people. You couldn't find anybody who had anything negative to say about this individual. And his family respected him. Not the kind of respect that comes from somebody who rules with an iron fist, uh, but the kind of respect that comes from someone who treats other people well, with dignity, and loves hard, and loves well. His children loved him. His wife loved him. They had a great relationship. He served his country. He served his community. He served his church. He did all of those things well, and he was the kind of man who had the kind of relationships that I would look to as a young man and say, one day I want my relationships to look like that. I want to leave a legacy like this man is going to leave. And when he got near the point of death, he had uh, an illness that was slowly wasting away, and he was older anyway, and so he knew that his time on earth was short. One day I got a phone call and said he wanted to talk. And so I went over to his house, and I just expected maybe he wanted to, to talk about getting things right uh, as far as getting things set up uh, for the funeral and things like that so nobody else would have to worry about it. It seemed like the kind of thing he would want to do, but that's not the conversation he wanted to have. Instead, he looked me dead in the eye, and though I would have thought he was one of the best men in the community, looked me dead in the eye and say, do you really think Christ forgives us for everything? Do you really think that even if we did some really, really terrible stuff in our past that we're going to be okay? Do you really believe that? This is something I thought he would have put to, to, put to bed decades ago. But there was another thing about this man that I learned later on, that there was a part of his life that he didn't tell anybody, not even his family. And like a lot of men in that generation, that part of his life was served somewhere in Europe when he was defending the cause of freedom during World War II and did something unspeakable or saw something unspeakable being done and decided that he wasn't going to tell anybody about it, put that away, partitioned it off, lived life like normal, but always had that in the back of his mind, questioning, am I really saved? Am I really worthy? Have I done enough to make up for what was done? Have I really earned the favor of God? Is it really that free? Because in that moment, he knew judgment was coming. He knew it was coming, and he wanted to be ready. And let me tell you the good news, right? He was, he was fine. He just needed somebody to come and remind him. He just needed his pastor to come in and say, yes, the grace of Jesus extends to you. Yes, God's salvation covers up anything that you've done. You don't have to tell me what it was. God forgives you. He's forgiven you completely. You will be saved. But what I saw in that moment was that sense of urgency because he knew it was coming. Like it wasn't something that may happen tomorrow. It was something that in the next few weeks, his doctor told him, was going to happen. And so he was going to take care of it. What if we had that sense of urgency with the gospel today, both for ourselves and with the people around us? Because we might tell ourselves this over and over again, 
And look, this is the point where it seems like Revelation gets repetitive, but I believe it does so in part for a reason. Because again, this is the most important message. And if we're not dealing with this, who cares what else is going on? Who cares if we as a church can teach about wonderful things like parenting and managing your money well if we don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ as the central focus of everything that we do? We should talk about parenting and managing our money well and honoring God with every aspect of our life, but if we do not have the gospel at the heart, center, and forefront of all that we do, we should shut up, disband, and call ourselves a social club because this is the most important thing that any of us could put our lives towards. Judgment is coming. Are you ready? And so let me extend that question to every single one of you this morning. Are you prepared? Judgment is coming. Are you prepared? I want to read another passage of scripture real quickly. Galatians chapter 6 verses 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from flesh reap corruption, but for the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us now not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So that as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. For the one who reaps the flesh, to the one who sows to flesh, they will reap the flesh to destruction. The one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternity in the Spirit. Judgment is coming. Are you prepared? Here's the thing. I don't want to scare you into heaven. Instead, I want you to think about that day when Christ calls the church home. I want you to think about the plentiful, fulfilled, ripened harvest of the church of Jesus Christ being called home to be with him in peace for eternity either upon your death or the day that Christ returns don't you want to be among that lot that we sing about in the old hymn when the roll is called up yonder don't you want to be called into that life into that eternity And don't you want the people around you to experience that as well? A judgment unto life. A judgment unto joy. A judgment unto salvation. Jesus is coming. He will judge. Are you prepared personally? Anyone hearing these words this morning... We take it for granted too often in our churches, but we need to ask our bodies, ourselves, this question. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you professed with your mouth that Jesus is your, is, is your Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? If so, you will be saved according to Scripture. But have you done that? Have you made that decision? And I'm not here to cast doubt on anybody's previous decision in life, but I must, I have to follow that up with a second question, and that is, if that happened decades ago, does your life 
bear any fruit because Scripture is also very clear that those who are in Christ are a new creation, that if we abide in Him, that we will bear much fruit, that if we are in love with Jesus, that we will obey His commandments. These are things within the gospel story that are undebatable. If Christ has saved you, He has changed you, you have grown, you are not perfect, you are still trying many ways to be saved every day, to be sanctified. There are probably huge holes in your life that aren't totally Christ-like quite yet, but have you grown towards him? Has he made a difference? Because where Christ is, there is a difference made. We can no longer peddle a cheap gospel that says all you have to do is say, yep, I'm saved and nothing ever happened to you. You must confess that Jesus is Lord. That means he's going to change you. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That means the perspective of your life is going to change. Has that transformation happened in your life? If not, do something about it today. Because if you have claimed to be a Christian for 30 years and you are living the same way you did 30 years ago, there's a problem that must be addressed. You might be saved, you might not, but you need to address that today. Amen? Where are you? And if you need that salvation, today is a good time to get it. I'll be down here during our time of invitation. You can talk to me then. You can talk to me afterwards. You can talk to anybody you know that's a strong believer in Christ, and they can lead you or they can find somebody who can lead you to an understanding of what it means to be saved. I encourage you to do that. Whether you're watching online, whether you're in this room, are you prepared for the judgment that is to come? And if you personally are prepared, are you preaching the gospel as a part of God's plan. And I don't mean standing on a stage preaching. I mean, are you telling other people about this same truth so that they too might be saved for the judgment unto Christ that is coming? I think that's all I have to say this morning. Let's stand up. During our time of invitation, I want you to think about those two things. Are you personally prepared? And how are you letting the people around you know? you need to pray about this or anything else, I'll be down here to do it with you this morning. I'm going to pray. Our band's going to lead us in one final song. And as Ethan does, would you move in whatever way God's calling? Father, once again, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your truth. God, we thank you for your son, your spirit here with us this morning. God, we thank you for your salvation. God, we thank you that the opportunity, if there is one in here, one hearing these words that does not know you, the opportunity is still available to them, no matter what they've done. God, may you show them how wonderful and how deep and how wide your grace is, your love is for them, that it can conquer any sin in their life, any failure in their life, any evil in their life can be blotted out by your grace. God, would you show that to them today? God, would you also remind them that there's a sense of urgency, that today's an opportunity to make that choice. They're not guaranteed another one. And God, may we who do believe in you, who are saved by your blood, God, may we take that sense of urgency out into the world and spread this good news to those who may or may not have many opportunities left. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your salvation. We know we don't deserve it, and we rejoice in it. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.